episode of the Behold podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, this week, it's a bit of a Safdi Brothers special. Um, if you <laughs> haven't heard about them, they are uh, a fairly new filmmaking duo. Uh, they've been around for a while, uh, but they've gotten recent recognitions, particularly for an Adam Sandler vehicle mm-hmm. called Uncut Gems. So we'll be talking about a couple of their films, to at least a couple of their more popular films to introduce you to the filmography of the Safdi brothers, their chaotic, gritty, stress-inducing <laughs> crime films uh, featuring uh, protagonists who are um, incompetent slash uh, blinded by their own vices. Um, in a pair of remarkable performances from Adam Sandler and Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. in a Good Time, which we'll be talking about later as well. Um, in addition, I've recommended to uh, Isa Fong um, a very... I, I like to use this word painterly, but in this case, it's quite literally yeah, painterly. Yeah, you know? in, in more uh, ways than one. Yeah, A painterly lesbian romance set in uh, 18th century France called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, and Isa has recommended to me um, uh, an anime called Your Lie in April uh, about music and about terminal illness and about uh, coping with grief. Uh, very sad, a very heartbreaking anime. Um, I have not seen the film though. Apparently, that's a live action film adaptation. I have not well. seen the live action film uh, for reasons, right? Like just basically, anime adaptation, live action anime adaptations are hard to watch for me. It never ends up well. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of people like to blame the Americans for terrible anime live action adaptations, but truth be told, the worst live ad- live action uh. adaptations of anime <laughs> have been done by the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, they, they very rarely get it right. So, I'm especially when a franchise ranks up as one of my favorites, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna risk um, tainting it by <laughs> watching the live action adaptation of it, unless it proves to be really good, which, which I don't think there's an example of that to date. Had never exists. Like, live action... Uh, anime is is even rarer than a good uh, video game adaptation. If yep. you can believe that, you yep, know exactly. It is uh yeah, it's 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 weird. Uh, but anyways, uh let, let let's kick it off with the Safdie brothers. Uh, I think we'll be talking about uh 2019's Uncut Gems. Although if you live in Singapore, you consider it a 2020 movie because mm-hmm. it did on Netflix here in January this year. Yeah. Um, it made a bit of a splash amongst, I guess the art house film goers amongst us. Yep. But I think the general population may not be aware of the Safdie Brothers or Uncut Gems. Um, and if you don't know, it's an American crime thriller. It's directed by Josh and Benny Safdie, uh, who co-wrote uh, the screenplay with uh, Ronald Bronstein. It stars um, comedy, <laughs> I use this word loosely, legend, uh, Adam Sandler, <laughs> as uh, Howard Ratner. He's a, a Jewish-American jeweler. And a gambling addict in uh, in New York City's Diamond District. Uh, the basic premise is uh, he must retrieve an expensive gem that he purchased from Ethiopia to pay off his debts. Uh, the film also stars the Keith Stanfield, Julia Fox, KG, anything <laughs> is possible, Kevin Garnett, Idina uh, Menzel, uh, and um, The Weeknd, uh, strangely enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the score was composed by one of Tricks Point Niver, um, Daniel Lopatine, one of my our favorite producers. Mm-hmm. So uh, a huge list of uh, um, intriguing names here. Uh, and what I truly, truly loved about Uncut Gems, uh, slash hated about Uncut Gems, was its, uh, its jittery vibe, its anxiety-inducing <sighs> uh, messiness, and... and and what, what really strikes me about the Safdie's brother's style, and, and I don't know whether you feel this way as well, like, it's, it's very 
um, the looseness of it, the the dialogue over dialogue, people talking over each other, the swear words, the authenticity of New York. Yep. Uh, that, that is very rare to see in film because if you've ever been to New York, the Safdie brothers capture it um, perfectly, you know, and and the the wavelength of his of his film, this particular film, is very abrasive, very deranged, and driven by this blur of movement and noise. It's a it's a riveting high wire act. Um, that is kind of led by a spectacular performance by Adam Sandler, mm-hmm. who's playing against type. Um, what when you first watch Uncut James, what, what what do you think of it? Oh man, uh, I I think at that point in time it was picking up steam and people were were. A lot of accolades were going uh, Sandler's way, right? Like just yep. with his performance and all that. I find I found it hard to believe, right, mm. that um, for for Sandler to to shine in a dramatic role, you know, uh, that that in and of itself uh, was made me curious enough to to watch it. Have you seen Punch Drunk Love? By the way, his previous dramatic performance. Yes, I mean I did like him in Punch Drunk Love, but you know, uh, it, that's very different from a Safdie Brothers film. <laughs> Right, right, of course. Yeah, 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 you know, so for for him to be associated with that, and then on top of that, you know, it's coming out on A twenty four, right? With with the whole yeah. slew of great films that have been coming out from them, uh, from there, like I, I found it a bit difficult to believe. So I was curious, um, enough to just want to see what all the noise was about, you know, mm. uh, and it is a stellar performance, right? Yeah. Um, but what? Is what I found most puzzling is that I don't think Sandler is really playing a character very far from any other character that he's played, right? Mm. Like it's a believable Adam Sandler character. Uh, yeah, just it's, that, it's just the tone of the filmmaking. Yeah, uh, it gives it a different vibe. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. just not funny this time around, right? Like it's just not funny. Like he could have delivered lines in any other film, right? And and uh, you know, it would it would appeal to. Uh, a completely different audience, right? But there's something about um, the way that he plays Howard, right? There's something about the way that the Safdie brothers kind of frame everything and with the very kind of like pensive and, and tense and, and uh, I think jittery is the right word. It's um, mm-hmm. way in which way in which it is told and it unfolds that completely changes the context of his performance. Uh, it's It will be a very interesting kind of counterpoint to to compare... Sandler's kind of performance here with um with uh Robert Pattinson Robert is in good time because that feels like a very kind of different different um animal you know mm. uh in, in terms of the the main character's performance um mm. all in Perhaps all thematically similar mm-hmm. but yeah different performances yeah. thematically similar I think even visually also like I think the Safdie brothers have very kind of like strong visual palette right that they're, they're very like mm, very distinct that they like to lean into. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's good, but I hesitate to say that I enjoyed it the first time around that I saw it, mm. uh, just because there is a very anxiety-inducing stream of consciousness, uh, flow right that takes place over that, and that can get kind of frustrating. I think for people who aren't, um, exposed to what the Safdie brothers' style is like in general, will find it difficult to watch or annoying to watch depending on mm. what kind of movie goer they are yeah, uh, yeah but at the same time like this this is a, this is some work right here like it's hard to ignore you know as as uh as difficult it may be or as as much adjustment as it may take right to kind of get used to the flow of that uh and seeing sandler in 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 such a stark role uh for him 
uh, it is hard to ignore how good this actually is. Yeah, I mean, 100% agree. Like, what you mentioned about Adam Sandler's performance being not too different. I think the thing is, if you've ever seen Adam Sandler's comedies, you know, he plays this kind of manic, incompetent, stupid, self-destructive kind of kind of protagonist as well. Yeah. It, it's just that uh, it's, it's set in a comedic tone and you're rooting for him, right? Yeah. Um, think about who all the antagonists are in a normal Adam Sandler film. They're the normal person, right? Mm-hmm. They're normal people like us. And then they're, they're bothered by Adam Sandler. But because we're on Adam Sandler's side, we root for him. Watching this film, it's like watching from the perspective of an Adam Sandler antagonist. It's like, why are you doing all this? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so stressed about his, his gambling habit and everything, or what he does with his family, his mistress, his fight with The weekend, uh, Kevin Garnett uh, and <laughs> Stanfield, you know. Uh, it's just, a, you know, a very combustible character driven to destructive tendencies, uh, just, just trying to survive day after day. Yep. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very impetuous creation that really captures... Uh, J- j- the jittery New York City milieu uh, and it's a, it's a hypnotic blaster watching it come to life mm-hmm. this, this fast-talking jeweler always uh, chasing the next big score uh, speeding through nearly every scene as if he's dodging bullets and mounting attacks all at once yeah um, yeah it, it's it's quite energetic filmmaking very anxiety-inducing filmmaking just because of its pacing yeah this the stress of the of the perpetual wrong decisions uh that, that he he is making and and yet you know there is still this part of you that wants him to succeed yeah against all odds right like yeah you 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 want so much you you want to have so much to kind of hit your bets and say nah i don't think it's going to happen right like but there is something about um he is the underdog of his own story, right? Mm. And you want to root for him just because of that, because you know, like it's a very, it will end up being a very twisted kind of fairy tale for yeah, that to happen. Yeah, this is how we win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that speech to Keiji in his office. Damn, yep. you know, like in any other film, that would have, that would rank up there as far as like motivational sports speeches of, of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, had it been in a different film. Uh, but yeah, I I totally agree with you. Um, it it really is about, and, and again, you know, it it falls to kind of like watching Sandler's performance, which is so good, mm-hmm. in a different context, and it it seems so obvious after watching this film, uh, that it could have been done, but no one has done it, except yeah. the Safdie brothers, uh, which is which is part of the brilliance of the film itself. Yeah, man. Um, the circumstances just keep getting worse and worse for him. Uh, and then it kind of piles up with such a- astonishing kinetic energy. Um, there, there is a very grimy feel to it that I love, you know, that I love in all my crime films. Uh, and, and it's such a confident extension of, of the anti-heroes found all throughout the Safi Brothers' work. Like, this is the culmination, perhaps peak Safi Brothers' anti-hero protagonist. Yeah. Uh, is, is this guy, you know? Um, and that, that finishing sequence, I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything, but <laughs> um, the, it, it, it takes place backdrop by a Boston Celtics game, Boston Celtics game that I've seen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a real-life game that actually happened. Yeah. I know the score for it. And yes, it's, it still keep me at the edge of my seat watching this uh, conference semifinal. Um, and it, it was brilliant. <laughs> like, I, wonder, I wonder how they got the idea to set the climatic sequence to an NBA playoffs game. Yeah. 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 And, and, in a, and in that way, it becomes an alternate history film, right? 
yeah, yeah. on a very small well, I mean, scale. <laughs> alternate history in the sense that Ratner doesn't exist in real life, but yeah. the game played out how it played out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's just an interesting backstory. I, I really found that very, very clever. I mean, I, of course, I love the basketball references and all of that and, and you know, what's with, with, uh, mm-hmm. with Ratner's kind of obsession over it. Uh, and, I mean, just seeing KG on screen in, in yeah. this role was so bizarre. Uh, but so funny at the same time I know yeah Um, apparently um, initially it was supposed to be either Kobe or LeBron but they they turned it down so KG got it instead interesting Uh, okay and I I think KG works better because you know he he feels like a more I I think with with Kobe and LeBron there is an idea that they're superstars and they would never visit this Diamond District jeweler and KG is more of a street you know, he's from Boston. He's yep. a Northeast guy. Yep. It makes sense. Though. Yeah, and there is something about, I think Kobe and LeBron, like as, as big as, uh, bigger than life than they are, mm-hmm. um, there's something about KG's obsession with the stone that comes across as in, much more believable than had it been Kobe or LeBron. Right? Yeah. Like there's something about just the way that he's, uh, he, he, he approaches, um, you know, the the stone and the way he like caresses it like there's a and and it feeds into that the the mythos of his own kind of ritualistic behavior, uh, mm-hmm. uh before you know going on the court and all of that, so uh, yeah I I think like it was the right choice I guess or well not a choice because it kind of felt felt to him but yeah at, at the end of the day it, it really is a big part of the movie and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, um, I mean it it uncut gems probably won't sit well with anyone. Uh, who prefers protagonists easy to like or stories with a clean moral compass. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a genuine like subversive glee involved in following Howard through his inane slash insane quest for all the potential he can see around the corner, all the money he can score, uh, and watching him set himself up for failure uh, yep. with, such, with such conviction <laughs> uh, uh, the whole way through. Um, I, I think we get a sense that Howard, Howard is doomed from the start. Yeah. Uh, but the process of resisting his inevitable fate uh, makes the kind of like his ludicrous plans infectious and easy to root for simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. I, I do feel like there's a specific point in the film where you, um, where he breaks down, right? Like that's why, oh, it's just like, oh, maybe there's some sort of redemption arc here. You know, we're going to see something. But no. No, mm. that that happens for about thirty seconds, and and then he jumps into his biggest kind of uh, turn, yeah. right? Like that sets up the entire like uh, third act of the the film. Um, oh man, yeah, yeah. So like just the twists and turns, and and the way that the story is told, like it's it's deeply uncomfortable, uh, <laughs> because you as an audience you're pulled every which way, right? On on the one hand, you want to you know, keep in line with the story, but you're distracted by by the way that it's told sometimes and, you know, you want the protagonist to be a hero, but he's not. Mm. Um, and, and, like, having to sit and watch all of that and kind of, like, settle yourself with all of that is a very different kind of cinema, I think, uh, that is pretty unique uh, to, to what the Safdie brothers are doing. Uh yeah. I mean, also, like, you can kind of take this film on its own, like, this, this kind of mesmerizing chronicle of desperate schemes by a, yep. a, a, a low-grade hustler. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, if you, if you want to kind of read deeper into it, it's kind of the, this uh, twisted version of the American dream. Like, yeah. Know, like, what, what the American dream initially was and what it has 
come to be today. You know, um, the the rat race, people chasing money, uh, for no other reason than to actually get money. Um, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting view of what the what capitalism and the American dream has become in the twenty first century. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with you there. Yeah, a uh, very tragic, tragic comic kind of kind of vibe, lah. I I loved it. I will never watch it again. But <laughs> I I I loved it. Like this this deserves at least one watch. But yeah, it's not something that you watch for fun. No, I, and I don't think you can rewatch it again just because of mm-hmm. the way that it pans out. Right, like once you know, um, you know what you're getting yourself into. I don't. I I'm not sure if there is rewatch value, you right? Like I I'm not sure if you will one willingly sit through all of that again, if if that's the experience that you get, or two now that you know how it plays out, uh, yeah. whether it's it's worth your time. Yeah, I mean, granted, Uncut Gems is is not technically a horror movie in a traditional sense. Yeah, uh, but it it is more harrowing and more intense. Uh, than the best horror movies I, I've I've seen, like, it just in terms of his like enough shattering tension, yeah. uh, that just just refuses to simmer. There is no like breathing room. It it escalates and escalates and escalates. Uh, to to the point where you know uh, the conclusion kind of becomes obvious, but you just you, you just I don't know, hoping against hope uh, that that it works. Out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Um, what what do you think about the the score by uh one or tricks whenever? Um. I I like the score. I I feel like okay. What's important to me a lot of the time is, uh, there are two kinds of film scores that I like. One's one that really kind of like uplifts a scene, right? Uh, you know, I I think about like Johan Johansson's score for like Theory of Everything, where some of the scenes just don't work without the score. Mm. Um, and and it elevates it in that particular way. I I think for Uncut Gems in particular, the fact that I didn't notice the score. Uh, as much as I thought I would, given how how what a big fan I am of of uh, one of tricks, uh, is a testament to how good it is, right? Because it fits so well with the pacing and and every scene, right? That it doesn't kind of like stand out on its own, but contributes just enough tonally to add to that, <laughs> like right. between us. Uh, I I do feel that it's very different like un- the score for uncut gems felt very different from the score from good time right mm-hmm. uh and in in i mean no pun intended but how how um the music underscores every scene in uncut gems is is brilliant on its own you know like it adds a moodiness to it it adds a uneasiness to it that you don't notice at first Mm-hmm. Um, going into a scene like you have to kind of remember you or you have to I have to remind myself that oh you know like part of this feeling that I'm feeling is because the music is playing out this way yeah, uh, yeah. right because I don't think there's any there are no standout moments for me where I'm just like oh damn the music here is like really really good right mm-hmm. like it's kind of like an undertone throughout and that in itself is its own kind of brilliance yeah I mean agreed um, I also think um, Adam Tamler should have at least been nominated for uh, Best Actor at this year's Oscars. Uh, the, the trophy eventually went to Joaquin Phoenix, who, I mean, we had our issues with Joker, but mm-hmm. I guess he deserved the, the win. But, yep. I mean, Adam Sandler not being nominated for this is, is a bit of a, 
uh, a huge snub uh, and 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 kind of like devalues the Oscars for me this year, especially in this category. Yeah, uh, it's it's a bit sad, man. But I mean, great. Um, love the 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 cast of untrained actors as well, which the Southeast um are very prone to to hiring. They mm-hmm. like to hire untrained actors to give it a kind of sense of realism, gritty authenticity to it. Um, Julia Fox is not an actress. Um, Kevin Garnett obviously is not an actor. Yeah. Um, the weekend is not an actor, uh, and and yeah, they all they all played their parts authentically, like they yeah. they are who they are, you know. <laughs> it's it's almost like watching a a documentary rather than a rather than a a film, like. uh-huh. it's, I felt very propulsed by it, you know. It's like it's almost like watching a nature documentary, it's almost <laughs> anthropological, anthropological in 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 a sense, you know. Yeah. Despite the the very kind of psychedelic score and and some of the psychedelic visuals when you you know you go into the gems and stuff like that. Um, it does feel very real. Like it's it's like watching a documentary about uh, deer or, or antelope in the savannah, yeah. right? And like you see the fucking cheetah behind, <laughs> and then, like the deer just doesn't know that death is impending and keeps making terrible decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's a great kind of term to use to describe the Safdie brothers' work, right? Is anthropological thrillers. Yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah. That basically kind of sums it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any Man. any kind of like additional thoughts with that? Um, Uncut Gems, of course, right now is on on Netflix. Yes. Uh, for anybody uh, who wants to spend like uh, two hours and a, and a dime, um, feeling uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> if if you feel that your life is going too well right now, <laughs> yeah. Um, or or perhaps if you feel like your life is going badly, um, and you want in a Schneider fruit sense to watch someone's life go even even worse than yours. Mm-hmm. Uncut Gems might actually be a release because you, at least you're like I'm not Howard Redman. I do I do feel there is a lot of catharsis watching this. Yeah. Um, right? Because of the, just the way it builds um, you know throughout the thing and, and, and the kind of ending that you get uh, at the end like there is a release uh, when you're done mm-hmm. and that you know given the times that we're living in might not be such a bad thing. Correct, yeah. Um, speaking of also on Netflix, the Safdie Brothers' uh, f- previous film, uh, 2017's Good Time, also on Netflix, um, a lot less hyped than, uh, than Uncut Gems is. And um, I, I, for one, was very disappointed la, by the lack of attention that Good Times had uh, because uh, since 2017, I had been like singing the praises of this film, saying that it's one of the best crime thrillers out there, saying that if you think uh, of Robert Pattinson still as Edward, go and watch Good Time. Of course, <laughs> I mean, Robert Pattinson has, hasn't shed that, that, uh, that typecast. Like, you know, he's been in a, in a bunch of very adventurous roles, you know, in The Lighthouse being one of them, Cosmopolis, High Life, and things like that. But uh, Good Time was my was the first time like, I, I saw him break out as this very... Um, adventurous indie actor mm-hmm. and and man uh good time is is one of my favorite uh crime thrillers out there i think i actually en- i enjoy good time uh more than than uncut gems what about you um it's very different right they're mm-hmm. two very kind of different monsters um i i okay i think the only point in time where i feel like uncut gems stands out for me is with the ending right yeah uh good time is a great film. Uh, but I didn't quite get the ending that I wanted. Uh, but at the same time, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Like It's the perfect ending for the film, but it wasn't the ending that I wanted. Uh, or the kind of ending that I wanted. You know, And, and that's kind of like my only complaint, but it's, it's a very subjective complaint. Mm-hmm. 
in and of itself. Like it is um to- tonally uh and, and visually it feels very similar to Uncut Gems. And 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 just bear in mind that I watched Good Time after I watched Uncut Gems. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not not so much kind of like back to back. Um, but uh, just in terms of cr- chronologically how I watched it. So my introduction to the Softy Brothers is Uncut Gems and not Good Time. Uh, mm-hmm. and therefore like that kind of became the the point of reference for me in terms of their body of work. All right. Um. Yeah. I I really enjoyed it. I think like this is. It, this like like you said, if you want to see what Pattinson is capable of, like there's so much range, right? Just from from his his portrayal of uh, Constantine here, uh, uh, Connie yeah. here, um, the it's such a compelling look at what he can do. It is one of the few, not one of the few. This is, I think this is one of the the biggest cases for you to just forget like that that Twilight ever existed for him. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, he, he is a powerhouse actor and he can carry the entire movie on his own. Uh, it's it's quite nuts. Uh, how Agreed, yeah. good and how much range he shows just for this one character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, you can't stop watching him. Right? Uh, it, it's it's a, an amazing kind of, like, train wreck. Uh, much in the same way Uncut Gems did, but I feel like... Um, Pattinson has a much stronger performance than Sandler because Pattinson here literally carries the entire story. Mm. Uh, and it is a tour de force that isn't like Adam Sandler playing himself in a different context, right? Like this is a totally different um, Robert Pattinson that most people would, would have, have seen, you know, outside of him and all the recent stuff that he's done recently. If you haven't seen any of that, Mm. Uh, like Good Time is a, play, a great place to start just because um, you kind of get lost in in his world uh, in, in, in uh, Connie's world in, in Good Time and you don't even know it right you're just kind of like swept up uh, you know uh, much, much like the crystal the girl in the movie gets swept up with, with the way that he talks and the way that he like you know, it's kind of spins everything to to his own kind of like narrative. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, if you're unaware, um, Pattinson he plays as you mentioned, Cornelia, who is like a a lower income queen's uh, hoodlum, I guess is the word. Yeah. Uh, who wants to help his mentally challenged brother, uh, Nick, uh, played by director Benny Safdi himself. Um, he convinces him to team up to rob a bank. Um, the heist is successful, but soon after. Uh, the cops arrest Nick, uh, forcing Connie to come up with uh, an impromptu plan to free him. Lah. So the, the plot description suggests a rather straightforward crime narrative, but the, the, the brilliance of the Safdie's film lies in its kind of sharp eye for detail. Mm-hmm. It's kind of very casually inventive uh, storytelling, you know, like, like learning that Nick is in hospital due, due to a brutal jail beating. Um, the brother improvises a way to get him out. Uh, the first of several instances in which Connie d- displays um, an uncanny intelligence and, a, and an ability to stay cool in a mm. tense situation, yep. yet still being able to fuck up monument. monument. <laughs> um, and 
it's one of those like dualities, right? Like, yeah. like same, same thing with Howard Ratner, right? Like he is clearly resourceful and smart. Like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's just that the situations that he gets himself in, like shouldn't have been there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the Southies repeatedly throw um, unexpected obstacles in his path, including one twist that is, is better not to know before seeing the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and because like the film doesn't really reveal much of Connie's backstory. Um, so Pattinson himself must embody a kind of his uh, lifetime's worth of anxiety and scrappiness in just look and action. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the actor really rises to the challenge. He effortlessly conveys his... Um, he feels like a, 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 the, the, he feels edgy like, like a drowning rat. You mm, know? Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, he's a grubby thief, but he's also smart and resourceful. Uh, and emerges as an unlikely rooting interest, uh, much like how Ratner is. Uh, and much of the pleasure of good time comes from watching the character navigate through the different perils, whether it's you know this innocent 16-year-old played by uh, Talia Webster, who, who, who he finds, or, or a recent parolee who he encounters uh, with some uh, ill-gotten money. Um, there is a lot of twists and turns that you don't ex- expect with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I never felt at, at any one point that it felt implausible. Yeah. Um, it, it, it kind of throttles with a desperate, grungy velocity uh, and Robert Pattinson's uh, raw performance, uh, which is just full of like gutter, gutter urgency. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's very powerfully immersive uh, and, and, and it kind of embodies the Safdie Brothers style once again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it is... Okay, Good Time is a comedy of errors with none of the comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically, like, it's structured in, in totally in that way, but with none of the comedy whatsoever. Uh, you know, and it it is amazing to see um, Pattinson's character get thrown curveball after curveball and how quickly he reacts to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how quickly, like, it feels, it feels so natural to, to see him make that turn, you know. Uh, every single time, and yeah, it's just so 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 good. Uh, it's it's a bit uh sad that we can't talk about. We would to to spoil some of the turns here would definitely be to spoil the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, just all around like kind of great performance. Um, and we were talking about the soundtrack. I think like the soundtrack is much more um evident in in good time. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the the track that one of tricks does with Iggy is fantastic. Uh, just like at which point in time it's used in the film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I really, really like Good Times. Uh, I just okay. Let's let's talk about how how did you find the ending for this? Right, we don't have to say exactly how it ended, but like in mm-hmm. terms of how did you feel? I, it it felt really sudden for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that felt very unsatisfying, right? Uh, to have followed him. Um, you know, kind of like step by step all the way to all these like twists and turns, and and like you said, right, like a like a drowning rat, like j- just scurrying t- to the next kind of like safe ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but for it to have ended the way that it ended felt so meh, uh, to mm-hmm. me. You know, um, what about you, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I mean, having seen the Safdie brothers prior to Good Time, even then, like they like to take their crime stories to their logical conclusion, mm-hmm. uh, often to uh, the dissatisfaction of the audience, yep. because the the point of their stories is, I mean, as as gritty as the stories are, truly the point of the stories is crime doesn't pay. Yeah. Um, it is a very you would you 
their films are so immoral and it, it, it blows my mind that their essential message is actually a moral one. Mm-hmm. Um, you do these things, you get what's coming to you. Like, and the pro- protagonist for all his films, from Howard Ratner to Robert Pattinson here, they get what's coming to them. Uh, nothing turns out well, regardless yeah. of all their ingenious schemes and plans. Um, I thought that it was a logical conclusion. Um, intentionally dissatisfactory. Uh, yeah. But it it's like... Um, it's like what happens with Omar in The Wire. Uh, again, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you have seen The Wire, you, you know how, how it ends for Omar. Uh, and there is a certain di- unsatisfactory nature to it, but there is a certain realism in why it happened and how it happened that uh, that keeps the authenticity of the vibe of this film and, and David Simon's show. Uh, so I appreciated that. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, man. Uh. So you watched it on Netflix recently. Uh. And if if uh, once again, you know, if you want to watch the Safdie Brothers' this uh, filmography, they're all available on Netflix actually. And you can go even further back. They have a lot of movies prior to Good Time and Uncut Gems. Uh, I'm just pointing out Good Time because you know Robert Pattinson is the new Batman. Mm-hmm. He's in a lot of uh, um, a, a lot of controversy and a lot of debate <laughs> whether he should be Batman. I mean, I I've never had that like. I mean, I I've seen his his new his his recent work, so I'm I'm very confident that Rob Benson is one of the more, uh, well, one of the best actors of this generation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm very cool with that. And and if you want to, if you want to be, uh, convinced of to of Robert Benson's talent, Good Time and The Lighthouse and, yeah. and everything else are, are great examples of his. I think his after, oh uh, sorry, go ahead. I think after watching Good Time, I'm a bit more concerned. Not so much about Pattinson, like tainting Batman's legacy, but kind of like Batman's tainted legacy <laughs> affecting, mm-hmm. you know, Pattinson because, like, such a great actor, you know, such a great actor, and I don't want him to kind of end up like so many of the other actors who have played Batman. Um, I mean, I feel bad for Ben Affleck, who did, uh, he did an okay, fine Batman, you know, yeah. it's just, uh, fandom is hard to please. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel, I feel like a lot of the great directors of our current generation, um, have been destroyed by f- by f- fandom yeah by by comic book fandom i think you know ryan johnson is a great example of this john boyega daisy ridley and, and, and people who are involved in like this big big thing yeah uh that that are not high art you know they're doing it for the paycheck uh and then their careers get destroyed because uh you know comic book fans are just uh impossible to please yeah yeah yeah. Um. I although I mean that being said, right? Like because of the nature of the Safdie Brothers film, I actually really want them to do a, a big screen adaptation of Wally Coyote. Because, <laughs> um. All, all his protagonists are essentially Wally, Wally Coyote, right? They're yeah. hunting something, and then like this this insane uh comedy of errors and misfortunes happen upon them. Yeah. You know. Yeah, they're all like live action Wally Coyotes in, in my own Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. That that would be. Well, I wouldn't put it past them to do something like that. So, uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, man. We'll, we'll put it uh, on the list of things that we want to see happen. Um. So, uh, the next topic that uh I recommended to Isa is uh I wanted him to like chill after Good Time uh, and Uncut Gems. Yeah. It's like I mean this is not like uh an easy or breezy film by any means like, no. but like relative to the Safdie brothers it's a bit it's a bit chiller it's uh, uh, it's a bit more contemplative and meditative and artistic yeah. you know things like that you know yeah. um, it is Portrait of a Lady on Fire um, a French film 
uh, that competed for the Palm d'Or at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival. I, I personally saw it in late 2019 at the Singapore International Film Festival. Uh, and it, it blew my mind. It was just one of my favorite French films in a while. Mm. Um, it, it it follows, um, it's directed by Celine Siama, uh, written by her as well. It's a historical romantic drama uh, starring uh, Naomi Merlant and Adele uh, Hainel. Um, it's set in France in the late 18th century and it uh, tells the story of a forbidden uh, affair between an aristocrat and a painter who's commissioned to paint her portrait, mm-hmm. her wedding portrait, I might add, uh, to an arranged marriage that she doesn't want to get involved in. Uh, the painter and the subject fall in love. Um, what do you think about Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Uh, it 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 touches a very different part of the emotional emotional spectrum <laughs> than the first two movies that we discuss. Uh, when when you say that it's painterly, like you're not kidding uh, mm. at all. Uh, I mean, uh, sure, it's it's you know it's in the title that it's part of the 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 story and all of that. But it is so beautiful. Just the way it, the the palette, the literal color palettes, the way that light it, it's it's, um, the cinematography is breathtaking, uh, so much of the time, and in this kind of quiet, contemplativeness of 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 you know um love and and, uh, and and beauty and art uh and all of these like gorgeous things right and the way that it's framed, uh it feels a lot like a painter considering an object before he paints it or before she paints it in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Uh and I I really, really enjoyed that, right? Like uh I, I watched this shortly after the uh, going through good times and it really like that that kind of like emotional contrast and tonal contrast really mm-hmm. um it is hard to describe how beautiful this film is in so many ways. Yeah. Uh it is such a different take I think on the idea of forbidden love. Um and I kind of immediately think about comparing it to blue is the warmest color, right? Mm-hmm. Uh which in and of itself, you know, kind of like thematically kind of similar the whole idea of of um two women in love but like captured in a very 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 different way. Uh, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire is by far like one of my favorite romance movies of recent times. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is to me the antithesis of Love at First Sight. Yeah. Um, Love at First Sight is is a fairy tale fantasy. This is um the story of love at at umpteenth sight. Mm. It's it's for two hours. The film's characters, the two women, you know, who meet on the edge of society and propriety. Uh, never stop studying each other. That's all they do. They mm-hmm. study each other. Yep. Their, their eyes sweep across candlelit rooms and wind-swept cliffs, all beautifully um, captured cinematography. Um, and, and the increasing intensity of their gaze and, and kind of the, the, the simmer of their passions uh, melt the barriers between them. Yep. So it's, it's, it's really... This French film is really about seeing someone, like truly seeing someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the process of discovery that only begins with the first look and then intensifies with more looks like like what we are watching is it's a very mutual and gradual seduction uh that, and it seduces the audience as well like mm. drawing us into the the striking vividness of the imagery the the quiet patience of the storytelling um it, it takes a, a 
like the, the plot almost even doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 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 a beautiful beautiful film. Um, and I one of my one of the most sumptuous and and rapturous love stories I've seen in a long time, and I think both uh, actresses really captured uh, that well. Yeah. 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 Hands down. Uh, it's so. What amazes me is that given its quiet kind of contemplative nature for large swaths of the film, right, the pacing is perfect. Um, because I, I think like a lot of the, that the space that is given and, and the pace that it is given is very much rewarded. Um, and but not rewarded in a way like most people would think like romance is rewarded you know maybe they, they get to make love or you know there's some kind of like joyous kind of celebration there's none of that right like so much of it just ends up being the opportunity to be intimate with one another right like that is its own reward and the audience feels that as well right like you have this tension kind of like building throughout all these really kind of like quiet scenes and, and it leads into a moment of 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 um, communion of, of intimacy, um, and that cycle keeps um, repeating itself to to in growing intensity throughout the film, you know. And it creates a very different kind of like reward um, structure for the audience that is is very rare um, to have like that kind of scenery chewing. At the same time, having such a beautiful pace at the same, uh, it's it's really quite marvelous. Yeah, uh, I mean, with such a restrained, at least dialogue wise, a restrained. It's it's not restrained cinematographically, mm. like it's it's beautifully shot. But watching this kind of restrained blossoming of infatuation, you know, the the private motives of of, of stolen glimpses and and wandering eyes and stuff like that, you know, the the yearning like, that is in every scene. Uh, plays like this, you know, the, all the boys, voyeuristic close-ups and all that. You know, it's yep. a very great courtship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a great two-hander. Uh, it makes the drama very intense. There's electrifying chemistry between both leads, uh, unspoken at first and until it finally isn't. You know, um, in fact, I actually think the first consummation of that romance is verbal, not physical. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's an exchange of intimate observations. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of takes a personality that uh, that only you know. Uh, that only the besotted uh, notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like as as sexy as any sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and Celine Siama really is, is brilliant in capturing that. As she is brilliant in capturing the the period elements of it, like, mm-hmm. we are, we are also invited to luxuriate in the low lights and the routines of another era, and experience that era's more deliberate pace, like the kind of the way the minutes uh, pass onto one another. Uh, a more slower pace of life. Yeah. You know? uh, but the, the soul of the film is definitely modern also, you know, mm-hmm. being a lesbian romance. Like. Yeah. Some of my favorite scenes take place in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, just like the low light and like, the, you know, the slight flicker <laughs> of, of the fire and, you know, these hushed tones as, as these women just, just kind of like share their day uh, mm-hmm. and their experiences. Um, so compelling. Uh, yeah just to kind of feel that that to be to be let in into that secret quiet space right that they share um yeah so good so so good um yeah i i really want to talk about um my favorite moment in the film which is also coincidentally my my favorite musical cue of 2019 oh. <laughs> um the, the moment comes just a little past the halfway mark of the film 
uh, Marriott and Eloise, the two leads, have yet to acknowledge the, the, their growing desire. Yeah. Uh, then they are brought uh, to an evening gathering of women who live in an isolated island. Mm-hmm. Um, the two soon-to-be lovers kind of exchange glances across a bonfire. And then this, this low, uh, slow chant starts to rise as the rest of the women gather to sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song grows, the uh, clapping starts, and then they begin to repeat uh, a chanted lyric. Uh, it's hard to describe the, the magic of this musical moment, yep. but it's so beautiful. It, I, it's kind of like, it, it induces you into a trance-like state. Yep. Um, and it, I, I don't know how to describe it. You just have to watch it, man. It's my favorite musical moment of, of last year. It is, it is so incredibly powerful. Um. I, I loved it and I, I just kind of like want to counterpoint that with the musical moment that you get near the end mm. right with uh, um, Vivaldi at the end like uh, on the one hand you have this amazing kind of like wellspring of, of music and and humanness that, that comes from these women coming together in a chorus uh, yeah. you know um, much like mirroring mirroring their love right uh, their growing love for each other and then at the end with the, with the presto uh, presto from summer by, by Vivaldi at that one last scene as a kind of like forward momentum that you can't stop right like life takes has taken over and you know you're just going to be dragged along by it mm-hmm. um right in the in the heat of of of, of life um like those two moments are just stunning yeah yeah they really really are yeah, man. Like I, I've been, I've been watching. I haven't re rewatched the film recently, but I have been rewatching that particular scene on YouTube a mm. lot. Uh, just just because I loved it, and and as, as well as as the ending cue too. Uh, um, brilliant, brilliant stuff. I I really feel like I I a lot of people seem to be intimidated or bored by period dramas. Um, I I do have to say that if you are, you have to make an exception for this one yep. uh, because it, it's it's one of the you know particularly it's not in English you have to read subtitles. Uh-huh. I know a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people don't like period dramas, especially long lingering romances. You know. Yeah. But this is this is probably the best done that I've seen in a long time. It's it's there is so much here to kind of like take in that it's never boring. You know, yeah. and and you give one in time. I mean, like the amount of emotion and, and meaning and, and that can be packed into a single look from any one of these actresses, right? It's like astounding. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, portrait of, of a Lady on Fire, it, it kind of completes uh, romantic and creative pursuits into into one. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of arguing for a, a curiosity, a, a genuine interest in the deeper truth of whatever you're fixated upon, whatever your artistic subject is. Yep. Um, uh, it, it's It's... It's brilliant. It uses it uses the painting as as a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, and it's able to create uh such a lot of layers of meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight up to its uh its its all timer of an ending, uh, a supernova of of feeling expressed and provoked. Uh, brilliant stuff. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is is available on on all VOD platforms, uh, iTunes, Amazon, and stuff like that. You know, if if you want to watch it, or if you're in America, you can watch it on Hulu as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Um. A- any concluding thoughts before we move on? Um, no, I just highly, highly recommend it. I, 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 I think like in preparing for this particular episode, and the stuff I had to watch, like I, I um, I was definitely portrait of a lady on fire is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it is a rare, it is a rare gem that that comes like once in a blue moon. I, I feel. 
Yeah, uh, man. And um, I really, really enjoyed it and I highly recommend it. Yeah, uh, same. Um, speaking of uh, musical cues and love stories, <laughs> uh, Your Lie in April is entirely that. Um, would you like to give a, a little um, uh, synopsis of Your Lie in April before we, we discuss it? Yeah, so Your Lie, for Your Lie in April, uh, we follow piano prodigy Kosei Arima, um, who at a young age starts to dominate you know, music competitions and becomes uh, somewhat of a name, right, among, amongst child musicians. Um, but at the same time, his, his upbringing is um, wrapped in a lot of controversy. Uh, his mother, Saki, uh, I mean, I, I, I think Tiger Mom is kind of a, yeah. is a bit of an understatement, right? Uh, so she herself uh, is a music, te- uh, a piano teacher and somewhat of a fail aspiring, you know, um, pianist herself. And a lot of that has, uh, as they as they tend to be, a lot of that has been projected onto to, uh, Kose, right? Uh, and you know he struggles with trying to please his mother and being the best possible, um, you know, pianist that he could possibly be. You know, when when she dies, uh, he has a mental breakdown while performing at a piano recital and it results in him losing his ability to hear the sound of his piano uh, while he's playing it, right? And that's kind of like where the story begins. Um, we Most of what I've just talked about, like you kind of discover through a lot of flashbacks. Um, mm. So a couple of years later, Kosei is still struggling with this particular problem, right? He hasn't touched the piano um, and and his world is is you know is kind of bleak ever since losing uh losing his ability to hear him himself playing the piano, uh, and he has resigned himself to a very different kind of life from from what he had as a, a child just two years back. Yeah. Um, and one fine day, as with many anime, uh, a girl appears suddenly and changes everything in his life. Uh, mm-hmm. He meets Kaiori, who is an a free spirit in uh, many senses of the word, a 14-year-old violinist whose playing style reflects just the um, audaciousness of her personality. And he, mm. she makes it her goal to help Kosei return to the music world uh, and, and shows him how she, what she believes music to be, that it should be free and not as structured as the music that he, he grew up learning under his mother. Mm-hmm. Um yeah and uh as as they continue to kind of like get to know each other and go on like these little very very heartwarming kind of adventures uh you know they end up performing together and and um that's kind of like the the twist in all of that where um he discovers that uh Kosei discovers that Kaori actually has a has an illness right mm. that she's never told him before so i won't go past that but that essentially is is the main part of the story i think there's a lot uh that we don't want to spoil yeah uh, about how things play out um mm-hmm. that being said it's and i was just talking about it before we started recording and it's uh it's pretty easy to telegraph mm. uh what what happens i think but that doesn't change the fact that yola in april uh, ranks up there as one of the biggest anime cry fest that uh we've had in recent times I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that recent. Wait, this was... Um, 20, early 2010s? 2013 or 14? Yeah, I think it started airing 2014, right? So yeah. it's still some time ago, but um, like it, it's a really, really sad anime. 
um, but one that ultimately speaks of 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 hope, right? The the very young ages of its characters and the their, the innocence as they go about their lives and learn about each other, and what living is about, and what music is about, and what art is about, and what love is about, at these kind of tender formative ages, um, lends a very sweet yet melancholic um tone to everything that the anime touches on uh and it also makes uh ultimately the the whole story um both tragic and touching at the same time uh so what yeah. do, do you feel about uh watching your lie in april um firstly it uh this is a, a bit of a more um esoteric in terms of like other people may not get this, but mm. it felt to me like a sequel to uh, Whiplash, mm. um, in a sense that like uh, you know this could be like Whiplash two where Miles Teller meets <laughs> a girl, and then the girl tries to tell him that no music is not like how J.K. Simmons tells you. It's not meant to be structured yep. and clinical and and precise and technical. It's meant to be expressive and joyful and emotive, right? Yeah, you know. So like the first thing that struck me was. Whiplash too. <laughs> <laughs> you no, I, honestly, yeah, sure that that could that could very well be the case. You know, like it, that it has all the the hallmarks and traumas of Whiplash, right? <laughs> uh, but it just plays out in a very very different way. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, this this show is about music sure but you know the, the music much like the painting is is a metaphor mm-hmm. uh, for for various things um basically um the lead character dealing with his trauma uh he has a very complex relationship with music and a very complicated relationship with his mother yep. which is which is brought on by terminal illness uh his complex relationship with music extends to his new love interest kauri who um, similarly has a terminal illness also, but teaches him a new a new way to to express himself uh, musically. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very um, dichotomous exploration of terminal illness and and one's relationship with music. Yeah. How how it, it not only affects the one suffering from the disease, but also everyone else related to the person. Um, it has a great uh, love triangle and or quadrangle. Should I say? Yeah. yeah. It's a has a has a great love quadrangle. Also, except like um. The his Playboy best friend. <laughs> not, I mean, we know from the start lah that that Corey's not really interested in him. Yeah. Uh, but I guess it's a love quadrangle. Um, yeah. Uh, it's 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 really good and and just the fact that you know you learn early on that Corey has a terminal illness, his his violinist uh, love interest. Uh, and therefore the ending is telegraphed doesn't uh negate the emotional journey. Yeah. Uh, that that comes along with it because it's quite profound. Mm-hmm. Um. A similar underlying theme for all the free, previous three topics that we were talking about is the ability to telegraph the ending. Yeah. Uh, because uh, with Uncut Gems, Good Time, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, you know it's not going to end well. Yeah. Uh, but despite all that, you know, the journey is still fulfilling and worthwhile uh, and exciting and surprising. Uh, and it's the same with your lie, with your lie in April. Uh. Um, the meaning of the title will become obvious at, at the end of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the depiction of uh, the lead's uh, complicated relationship with his mother, who feels mon- I mean, she feels monstrous, like She is yep. downright abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing is, right? Like, I I don't know whether her mother is 
redeemable character wise i felt i felt like man like th- that was a monster like, and and what she did to a child yeah. is is monstrous like, you know yeah. uh he he she was the one who made him you know withdrawn and 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 shy and and traumatized and and uh and and fucked up his relationship with what should be a very uh joyful experience like, mm-hmm. you know the ability to play music like, mm-hmm. he's a prodigy and all uh destroyed his career destroyed his self esteem uh and and Kari on on her own that relationship with him is also very complex because he he kind of equates Kari with his mother like two two figures that he dearly loves yep. but uh has to let go eventually mm-hmm. uh for you know for natural reasons of uh, due to terminal illness it's it's sad and heartbreaking but also very beautiful yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely I, i again i think like a lot of the the gravitas of of the story has to do with the fact that they're so young Mm. uh you know having to deal with these things in your early teens right um is uh it's it's hard it's hard right like i i think uh, especially for kose's relationship with his mother it's something that he's not going to be able to completely unravel until he's much older or at least i hope he does right <laughs> if we were to project into into the future of this anime character right um, yeah you know that and and the the mom simply just can't be redeemed because she dies right she dies early yeah. on and and there's no way to kind of like fix that and the the i i think that is the major difference between you know um Kosi's mother and and his relationship with Kauri later on that it both are instances where he has to grapple with um losing someone that he he loves and and uh in the latter case like losing knowing that he's going to lose someone that he loves uh you know and how he grows kind of like from that um but it is again like there's an innocence to the characters and and just how young they are that lends so much weight um to the uh to the way things turn out um but at the same time like there's a hopefulness to it that that i i think uh in my long list of like uh enemies to cry to I, i think like this is by far one of the more hopeful ones uh, yeah 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 i'm just going to take a second to talk about um mm. the the music scenes here especially the performative competition style music scenes that we get uh in this series right because a lot of the what we see um is is uh kind of you know on stage in front of an audience and all of that uh so good so so good mm. i i would i would uh put it up there with watching some of the best like animated sports moments in anime you know like yeah. your hanabado or your haiku or your, you know any your yuri on ice right um mm. just like some of the performances that they've managed to animate uh quite breathtaking uh and and they they gave me the same kind of feeling you know as like kind of match point during hanabado's like final match uh, right. like it's so good and it's something that is so rare i think especially when we're talking about um music related anime um by and large i don't think i've consumed that much music related anime i mean you have things like back and you know all the slew of like band slash idol related animes that uh continue to be extremely popular um but i think current tuesday most recently mm, current tuesday most recently for sure uh, yeah. i think this was my first kind of foray uh into something that dealt with classical music 
mm-hmm. uh, and it's um, really really well done like each each piece that they choose and the way they choose to portray each piece uh, really yeah. is like outstanding uh, in terms of an, um, in 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 terms of the animation and the pacing and the artwork itself that accompanies the music mm. um, interesting thing of note um, as well is that um, oh man I can't remember their name you know that these two two violin guys that like um, do satire videos on YouTube right 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so they have actually praised Your Lie in April for being um, remarkably <laughs> realistic mm. in terms of the way um, you know like the fingering of the violin and the playing of the piano and all of that like the attention to detail there seems to be pretty realistic according to them. So, you know, another plus 10 points there. Yeah, man. Um, I think emotionally, musically, uh, this, this anime, uh, checks all the, all, all the boxes for me, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the depiction of, of Kusei's trauma, trauma, uh, is one of the best I've seen and one of the most realistic, mm. uh, especially in, in a sense that, you know, this mental block that he has isn't magically resolved by the end. Yep. He's on the way to growing out of it, you know. Yep. Uh, but you know, it shouldn't be so easily overcome, uh, Kauri or not, you know. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I I also loved on the flip side like Kauri's uh, um, approach to her own impending uh death is is completely opposite, you know. You know, instead of uh, in th- instead of kind of trying to provide for someone else, uh, she kind of leads a very happy very happy-go-lucky life, lah, you know, uh, while at the same time trying to help uh, Kusi at the same time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's, it's really uh, beautifully, beautifully told. Um, and also, you know, this tragic love story between two damaged themes brought together by their love of music and performance, you know. Uh, the themes, they range from, you know, um, music to terminal illness and child abuse and even the child abuse themes is a bit complex because yep. I guess I understand why Kusei's mother does what she does. Yeah, you know it's 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 very it's understandable. I mean, obviously, I'm not condoning child abuse, but I get I get her motivations mm-hmm. and why she went too far in trying to train Kusei. Um, it is uh, it's 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 far deeper and more emotional than most anime that I watch, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of touch upon love stories and emotional trauma in a very surface way and like a very uh, you know, oh, this is your backstory, and that's just it, and you know, you don't really explore the nuances of that backstory. Yeah. Uh, and on top, on top of that, it's also very, like visually and orally stunning, like, as as you mentioned, it's beautifully animated. Uh, the the score is is mm. is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever the real pianists and violinists are that 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 do the music for the show are very talented people. Uh, classical prodigies are in their own right. Um, yeah, man. Um, the 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 stuff that I in terms of the music competition, yep. I, re- I really got into it as well. Uh, <laughs> Kusei's uh, rivals too mm-hmm. um, are actually quite richly drawn. I really like both their rivals, um, the girl and the guy. I forgot their names. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like a uh, wonderful character work here. Um, yep. Rare to see a uh, great character work in, uh, I guess, competition enemy, you would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, they, they, they are set up as foils as far as they can be foils in an enemy like this, right? But they're given, you know, good. Per- they've got a fair amount of personality. They've got a good amount of backstory, right? You get a peek into what their lives are actually like. And they, ha- they share a very complex relationship with Kosei as well, mm. uh, you know, uh, that intertwines with his past. Uh, and, like, that's rare, right? Like, it's so easy just to have, like, a nameless, kind of faceless, like, you know, another child prodigy mm. um, just appear out of nowhere to move the plot forward. 
but they don't take that shortcut, which I really appreciate. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. Uh, top to bottom, from every angle that that this enemy approaches, you know, the love story, the musical aspects, the rivalry aspects, you know, the competition aspects, um, it's all like magnificently done. Um, Kauri is a great character. That is a that in the beginning it might be easy to. It might be easy to dismiss her as a manic pixie trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, before you dive into her story, so I think I would uh, suggest that before you kind of dismiss her as a trope, which enemy actually does a lot. Yeah. Uh, maybe wait until you see her story lah, uh, and, and her reasonings and stuff because like, she's not just the the bright girl that is supposed to fix the broken guy, mm-hmm. and there's, there's more to it than that. Like in fact, you know, on the flip side, uh. She is broken herself. She has her own issues that are independent of of uh, Kuse, uh, that are just as compelling as Kuse's issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really loved uh, Kuse's uh, childhood friend as well. Um, she more than I think more than even Corey or Kuse, I was kind of rooting for her as the underdog in in the, yeah. in the love triangle. Yeah. Um. Like she was never gonna win, but yeah. like that's 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 why she's a great underdog. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean like that that. It, it's how nuanced the relationships are here. Mm. Uh, I, I think a lot of the time we we get a lot of anime, um, kind of like this slice of life, like high school era anime, right? Yeah. That kind of like steamrolls through a lot of the the things that uh, an anime like Your Life in April intentionally slows down to take a look at, mm. uh, and uh, that that seems to be kind of like a, a similar, you know, with with a portrait of a lady on fire yeah exactly yeah um the portrait of a lady on fire and your light in april um amazing uh shows and films that provides a nice relief to the stress and anxiety <laughs> of um uncut gems and good time yeah um all great in your own respects uh, but like if you would like something to calm yourself down after the Saudi brothers that's why that's why we're kind of pairing this to at least that's why I decided to kind of like pair portrait with uh with the Zafi brothers. I was unaware that the Your Line April was gonna be like this, but they seem like <laughs> perfect ba- balances for each other. Like. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um so yeah, Should... Your Line April is available on Netflix as well. Uh, the anim- uh, the live action film is also available on Netflix. Oh, oh I don't is know. it? I I don't know, man. I I I'm gonna hold off. Maybe someday I'll give it a try. Yeah. Uh, I I will say, however, um, that I I wouldn't be surprised if eventually it gets picked up as a K drama. Oh yeah, it's very, it, it's yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah it, it would t- it will totally change uh the the story. I think, but like it it does take a lot a lot of boxes for for like a modern day K drama. Mm, agreed. Yeah. Um, your line April can be viewed for free on. Netflix, uh, not for free lah. But I mean, if you have Netflix, you can view it. Uh, it's also available on Crunchyroll and Hulu if you're in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of places to watch it. I highly, rec- it's actually a very quick watch. It's twelve twenties. Yeah. I don't know how many episodes. Twenty six, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like yeah. uh twenty minutes, twenty six episodes. Um, uh, is it twenty six episodes? Wait, let me just double check that. Uh, yes. Uh, twenty-two episodes actually. Twenty-two episodes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Twenty-two. Um, 
worth every one of them. There are no filler uh, episodes in this one. You yeah. know, there's no like flashback episodes or whatever. Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, totally worth your time. Um. All all of these are like super highly recommended this month. Uh. Hopefully you check them out. You know. Um. In fact, all of them are available on Netflix, right? Oh, except for Portrait of a Lady uh, Fire, yeah, that's which a portrait. is a bit, mm. yeah, which is available on whatever VOD platforms that that you prefer, lah. Yeah, man. Um, next week we'll be talking about uh three different things. <laughs> um, our main topic is um a very controversial cartoon called The Boondocks. Is it um, still controversial? Yeah, like especially more so now in the PC era. Mm-hmm. Um. Where we kind of look back on Aaron Magruder's radical, controversial, hilarious satire of African American culture. Um, it began as a comic strip in newspapers, and it became a very adult-oriented cartoon. Um, how it differs from a lot of black comedies is that it doesn't poke at white America. Yep. It pokes at black America, in, in terms of like, uh, he's trying to point out his own. So his own community's dysfunctions and caricatures and make fun of them and try to make you aware la, of, 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 of the different issues plaguing the black community that is not related to white people. Um, it's related to themselves. And it's something that dear white people tried to do in season three, but I think the Woundocks has a much better take on it and it's mm-hmm. still relevant today. Um, episode two um, about R. Kelly weirdly has like stood the test of time. <laughs> <laughs> Like yeah. till today, like I, I, you know, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, Netflix's um, unbelievable sexual assault drama, uh, starring Caitlin Dever, um, Tony Collette, and Merritt Weaver. Uh, and also a unique fantasy, not really. I mean, there's fantasy elements. Uh, a yeah. Unique fantasy anime about economics and commerce called Spice and Wolf. <laughs> Very interesting. The most. The most unique anime I must say I've ever seen because it delves so deep into economic concepts um, that I had Wikipedia open next to me. <laughs> I, I was constantly pausing and and looking up certain trade or commerce ideas to fully get the idea of of the plans that they were hatching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's very interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, it was a, it, I thought it was a bit of a spicy pick for me. Like I really really enjoy Spice and Wolf. Um, uh, you know, and it. It was, um, I I don't think it's for everyone, but I think people who give it a chance will be very very surprised by what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, definitely. So we'll be back next week on the twenty fourth. Uh, yeah. Till then, you know. Uh, this has been Hit Zero. This is Isa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.